0: It's good to be with you all this morning, and to those of you joining us online, it's good to have you with us as well. As Nate said, my name is Austin Clement. I'm a pastoral intern here at Ascension, and uh, I'm glad to be preaching the Word this morning. Uh, grateful for these opportunities. As I said last time, uh, I'll say it again this week, please uh, feel free to bless me by uh, taking whatever notes you want to take, and coming up to me afterwards, and uh, giving whatever feedback you think might be helpful. Um, This morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, so I'd invite you to turn there with me to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to be starting in verse 18. I'm going to pray, and then we'll turn to God's word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you that where two or three are gathered together in your name. There you are in their midst. Lord, we thank you that this morning we are not alone as we open your word, but that you are with us even now by your Spirit. God, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see the glory of Christ. Give us hearts to receive your word, God, which is what we so desperately need. Lord, we ask simply that you would work new life in us. Help us to have a heavenly vision as we open Romans 8 this morning to discern what that is and to live a life accordingly. God bless this hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, I'd invite you now to stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, we're in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Our text this morning is about suffering. And this life is full of suffering. So that in verse 18, Paul simply speaks of the sufferings of this present time. This age, the Bible teaches, is simply characterized by suffering. Now, as I was thinking on this text, I couldn't help but thinking of a well-known book title. Many of you will have heard of it, Your Best Life Now. Now, I haven't read the book, but the author is a well-known preacher with a well-known message. If you love God and if you have enough faith, God will bless you and give you a wonderful life. Health, wealth, and everything else And of course, we all want this. We all want the good life. By definition, we all want to be happy. No one wants misery. And it's okay to pursue good things and to seek joy and happiness. The problem comes when we begin to think that we can have our best life now. And when this belief sets in, this world... Wrongly becomes our central focus and we keep ourselves from looking to what should be our heart's primary aim and desire, which is as Paul puts it in verse 18, the glory that is to be revealed to us. And this is where our text begins this morning with Paul placing suffering next to glory and he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul's response to suffering is not to manage it or to minimize it, and it's not to despair either, but it's to consider the glorious future that awaits us. And so the central question I want us to ask ourselves this morning is this. In your present suffering... Where does your hope lie? In your present suffering, where does your hope lie? Now, of course, we're dropping into one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. If Romans 8 isn't on your favorite chapters list, you need to put it there. So for context, starting in verse 1 of chapter 8, Paul has been explaining the glories of what it means that Christians have been given the Spirit of God, and perhaps the best way to sum it up is to say that Christians, by God's Spirit living inside of us, we have new life. And what that means is that we do not—not uh, not only do we have power over sin, but also we do not live in the fear of sin and death and judgment. Because we've been given the spirit of adoption by whom we are made God's children. And in verse 17, Paul says, And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But then in the middle of verse 17, after all that goodness, there's this huge caveat, this massive condition. We're heirs with Christ, Paul writes, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, two things here, and we'll take them in reverse order. First, the glory. The glory that we're talking about here in our passage is nothing less than the glory of new resurrection life. That's the focus. Christ was glorified at his resurrection. And we will be glorified with him, verse 17 says. And in the words of verse 18, where we start this morning, that is the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the focus here. So resurrection glory is where we're headed. But secondly, and this is the reason for our passage, suffering necessarily precedes glory. Again, verse 17, heirs with Christ provided We suffer with him. And throughout Scripture, we see that it is God's will for us, for all his children, that we should follow in the footsteps of Christ. As Christ said in Luke's Gospel, whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Right? Because what does a disciple do? They follow, they do what their master does. And what did Christ do? do. He took up his cross. And so we should only expect the same. But here, what I want us to see as we begin is that Paul isn't speaking merely about the sufferings of persecution, about suffering for our witness to Christ. He's actually speaking much more broadly about all of life's sorrows, and all that Christ entered into when he took on human flesh. For Christ, suffering was characteristic not just of the cross, but of his entire life, because it was life in a fallen world. And that's what we too face. That is the suffering. It's any and all suffering. It's the sufferings of this present time. So you may look at your neighbor's life and say, man, they've got it good. But no matter how good it may look, no one escapes the present time. In contrast to the age of glory yet to come, the present time is a time of suffering. Now, so far, this may not seem very encouraging, but I think there's actually encouragement here for us through the back door, so to speak. When we encounter suffering, what are we so prone to believe? perhaps God doesn't love me. Perhaps he doesn't see me or hear my cries. Perhaps he doesn't care about me. Am I even really a child of God? Our suffering so often calls us to doubt God's goodness and his love. Yet what we see here is that suffering is not a sign that God doesn't care. Suffering is simply an unavoidable fact of life. And sure, there's suffering that comes as a result of our foolish choices, and because of our sin, no doubt, but there's a whole lot of suffering that we experience simply by virtue of living in a broken world. Financial hardships, health problems, dissatisfactions, with our jobs, disappointments, and broken dreams, and so much more. In this life, suffering is the norm. So don't misread your suffering. If you are in Christ, and God's heart toward you is one of love and good will. Even when he allows you to experience pain and sorrow, we will suffer in this life, and the answer according to our text here, is to consider the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now Paul says in verse 18 that it's so awesome and so wonderful that the sufferings by comparison, literally in the Greek, they have no worth. They have no weight. The glory is so massive that when you Put the sufferings of this life on the other side of the scales. It doesn't move the balance by one molecule. They're net. they have no weight, Paul says. Now that's a powerful metaphor, and that's a pretty big claim. And so Paul, in our text, he goes on to unfold the greatness of resurrection, glory. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And, and Paul unfolds this in two moves. Firstly. He says, the resurrection is the hope of all creation. The resurrection is the hope of all creation. In verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation even is longing for something to happen to the sons of God, to us. And the reason why is given in the next two verses. For the creation, Paul continues, was subjected to futility. Paul, or uh, Nate was, uh, uh, that was not planned. Genesis 3, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay, that's Paul. Really big sentences. And what we get in these two verses is one of the shortest and most dense summaries of God's plan for the world. Starting with the garden and reaching until the very last day. In the beginning, Scripture teaches God made all things good and glorious. There was harmony and well-being and fruitfulness But then, as a result of Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion, creation was, as Paul puts it, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God, God, in response to Adam and Eve's sin, brought a curse not only on Satan and on Adam and Eve, but also on the ground, and by extension, all of creation. But even as he did so, we know this is God who did this, because the text says, whoever did it, did it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The same one who subjected creation did so with a purpose from the very beginning, not only to redeem a people, but also to one day restore and recreate all things, And what's fascinating here at the end of this little segment is that creation is said to long not for its own glory, but actually to obtain and to participate in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Our redemption is the hinge upon which the redemption of all creation turns. And be clear, Paul isn't speaking about when we die. Scripture teaches that when we die, our souls go to be with the Lord, but our bodies remain in the ground. And though that heavenly dwelling with the Lord is no doubt good and joyous, there's still even a greater day yet to come. And that day is when Christ returns on the clouds. It's then on that day that our bodies will be resurrected. Christ will conquer and judge all of his enemies. He will vindicate his people and then we will live forever with God in the new heaven and the new earth. And that will ultimately come down from heaven, as Revelation 21 says. But it will ultimately be located here, where we are now. And that's why Paul, in our passage, he speaks of this creation's future freedom and glory. And then Paul gives this little summary in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning Together in the pains of childbirth until now. And here's Paul's point the glory to be revealed to us is so big, so big that all of creation longs for it. I think there's a couple takeaways for us here. First of all, as believers, we should understand that the redemption we look forward to is not just myopically our own personal bodily redemption, but it is a cosmic redemption redemption, a renewal of all things. Now in our day, there's been an increasing concern and even obsession at times from some quarters with preserving and protecting our planet. Now I think it's clear from scripture that God calls us to be good stewards of everything he's given us, including this earth. This is our home. But we also know that creation is broken Natural disasters, harsh weather, famine, or just talk to, to any farmer who has to work with the earth for a living. It's not easy stuff. And Paul says that creation is in bondage to corruption. There's only so much we can do. But the point here, the point here in Paul's writing is to see how creation responds Rather than despair, creation waits with eager longing. Ultimately, these verses aren't about creation care, but about how in suffering, hope is had by considering our future glory. And I think also, secondly, as believers, it's good for us to think about the glory that all creation will exhibit on that last day. It's good for us to use our imaginations to help us long for that great and glorious day. Years ago, uh, when I was in college, James Cameron came out with uh, just this massive blockbuster. Okay, It's not Titanic. I'm not that old. But uh, (laughs) it was, or was I alive when that came out? I don't know. Maybe I am that old. Uh, But the movie name is Avatar, And Avatar was this huge deal. Avatar is the highest grossing film of all times, in in terms of the box office ticket sales anyways. The highest grossing film, and the reason for that is because of the incredible beauty that is depicted in the film. The setting is, uh, I think, the 22nd century, and if you can imagine, humans have... Left planet Earth, they're flying around space, uh, and they find this planet called, it's actually a moon, but it's called Pandora. And they're mining Pandora for its resources, but it's this lush and beautiful planet that's just brimming with life. If you can imagine the, the Amazon rainforest, but on like steroids, the trees are, are the size of skyscrapers. And creation is just buzzing. Everything is luminescent and moving. It's so beautifully depicted, in fact, that people coming away from this film, uh, some of them anyways, got what was called PADS, post-Avatar depression syndrome, or the Avatar blues. There's multiple names for it. This got a lot of press because You come away from this film, and if you do not have hope of glory in a life to come, you know that what you just saw is the greatest thing that, you know, could be potentially depicted by art, but you will never get to experience it. This life is the best you've got. One of the glories of being a Christian is looking forward to a life in which all things will be reflecting so brightly the magnificent beauty and majesty of God. And it's good for us to consider that. That's why I think Revelation gives us this, this imagery that is obviously highly symbolic of gates being made of, of pearls and these the foundations being made of these beautiful jewels, the foundations of, of the walls of the city and the streets being paved with, with gold. And maybe that's meant to be taken literally, but I think the point is that whatever the beauty of heaven is, it is far greater than we could possibly imagine. Creation longs for that day, the future day, the glory that is to be revealed to us is incredible, Paul says. So Paul speaks of the renewal of all creation and this present suffering. That's its answer. Look forward. Resurrection is the hope of all creation. That's Paul's first point to say that the glory to be revealed to us is is big, is incomparably great. And then the second point is that resurrection is the hope of God's children. Resurrection is the hope of God's children. In verse 23, Paul continues, and not only creation, but we ourselves we have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies now this statement i think is meant to be a bit surprising creation groans because it's in bondage but believers paul has made very clear believers aren't in bondage We have the first fruits of the Spirit. And in verse 2 of this chapter, Paul says that the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In Christ, we have already been brought from death to life, but even so, Paul says, we groan. And his point here in verse 23 is to make it evident that while our salvation has begun, it's not complete. And that's why he says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have yet to experience the full harvest. And it's for this reason that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And this phrase, I think, is also a bit curious because, once again, earlier in this chapter, Paul has spoken of our adoption as a present reality. In verse 15, "...you have received the Spirit of adoption... As sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's the present cry of believers. And so there's a sense in which we have already been adopted, but the full enjoyment of that adoption, its full significance and meaning, has yet to be realized. We have yet to experience, along with Christ, the redemption of our bodies and the full measure of Christ's inheritance. And the end result, Paul says, is that we groan inwardly. And then Paul makes this very loaded statement. In verse 24, he says, For in this hope we were saved. And this is not a passing comment in this passage. Paul is saying that not just Christ's death, but Christ's resurrection is central to the gospel. In fact, in the sermons we see in Acts, The resurrection is the central fact that the apostles are testifying to. And it's because the resurrection validates everything that Christ said and did and everything that the cross meant. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christ's death meant absolutely nothing and we have no hope of salvation. And I want to read a a few verses out of that Chapter Paul told Timothy that he should devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. It's good for us simply to listen to the Word of God. So 1 Corinthians 15, listen for just a minute here. Starting in verse 17, Paul writes, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order." Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. This is the hope in which we were saved. Paul says that the resurrection is everything to believers. Without the life to come, our lives are 60, 70, 80 years, whatever God gives us, of very painful and terrible labor pains. Paul says, without ever coming to the point of delivery if there is no resurrection. But there is, and so there is hope. And it is of the very nature of hope, Paul says, to look forward. Hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Right? If you can see it, then it's not something that you're hoping for, it's something that you already have with you. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And this, Paul says, is the nature of our present salvation. We don't right now have everything we're promised in the gospel. Yet, knowing the one who has made those promises, we know that one day we will. And so we have hope and we wait with patience. We wait for the redemption of our bodies, and that's worth our looking forward to. To a day when bodily pains, illness, 2020 just happened, mental decay, all of these will be removed. No more medications, no more trips to the hospital, no more agonizing illnesses that the doctors can't treat. And no more separation from loved ones. No more saying goodbye. But how about this one as well? The resurrection body, no more struggle with sin. No longer will we be in these sinful bodies, these bodies of flesh. All the evil things that we long for. All of the temptations that we have to struggle against, all the things that we do that hurt ourselves and hurt others, there won 't even be one ounce of desire or attraction in any of it. That would be a wonderful thing, but greater than even these yet than than the physical renewal than the than the removal of the struggle with the sin, greater than these is the capacity that our resurrection body will have to take in the glory of God. We will be able to drink of the treasures of heaven so much more deeply. Our taste buds now are dull and desensitized, but in heaven, everything is going to taste sweeter. The majesty of God is going to shine brighter, and the music that, put, that fills the air is going to put Mozart to shame. Now beyond all of these, still, we will be able to finally behold our Lord Jesus. This by far is the greatest treasure of heaven. As the Apostle John puts it, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. one day we will see our Savior face to face, the Lord Jesus, by our side. We'll be able to sit with Him and talk with Him. So friends, do not be deceived. We will not have our best lives now. Rather, we hope for what we do not see, and we wait for it with patience. Now, there's just a couple more things I I want to say. First of all, nowhere in this passage is God's word encouraging us to downplay the suffering. In fact, we read of groaning. And it's only proper for us to groan, to lament, to cry out. Because we wait eagerly for adoption, as Paul writes. So we need not think that we need to be numb to life's sorrows. In fact, you can't long for that future day of glory and not be groaning. As we've seen, our suffering, in fact, is what inspires us to lift our gaze and to long for and live for Christ's return. The point of this passage, know this, it's not to minimize suffering, but to maximize the incredible glory of that day. Secondly, if you're not already hoping in Christ for salvation, please make that your hope. Scripture says that Christ died for our sins and that He rose again from the grave to conquer death and to usher in new life. And that gift is extended to all who would receive it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Scripture says. So if you do not yet have this hope, it is yours for the taking. Please know that. Lastly, for those of us who believe, let us be reminded that the resurrection is central to our faith. It's not just some future thing out there that we sort of look forward to. It is everything to us. Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day, conquering sin and death. He ascended into heaven. He rules and reigns from there, and one day He will return to judge the living and the dead, and then we will live forever with Him in glory. That's the message that we trusted in and believed upon when we came to Christ. So let's not live for this life. We cannot have our best life now. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's not try and bring the glories of the next life into this life and so lose the glories of the next life but let's spend our time and energy and our resources pressing into the kingdom of God, of looking forward to that kingdom in all its fullness and inviting whoever would come along with us to enter into that kingdom. I've got you here, so I'm going to take one more minute of your time to direct our sights again to get into the hope of the gospel. And I want to let God's word speak to us from 2 Corinthians Chapters 4 and 5. This is where we'll close. Paul writes in Second Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, that is our bodies, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing in God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you that you sent the Lord Jesus to suffer the agonies and the sorrows of this life. God, that we might know heavenly joy and might know it eternally. Lord, for those of us here who do not have our hope currently set upon Christ and His kingdom, God, would you instill that hope in their hearts. Lord, and for those of us who are your children, Help us to look to that great day, Lord, especially in our suffering. Give us courage. Give us hope and help us to wait with patience. God, you are good and we worship you this morning. Would you be pleased with the remainder of our time as we praise your name? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.